friends. Thank you so much for coming back to All Things Skin. I'm Dr. Missy Clifton, and today I'm joined by another business partner and board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Blake Williams. Blake, thank you for being with us, my friend. Thank you for having me, Missy. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk about some skin issues with you. Yeah, we're going to talk about some some interesting summer freakouts today. So when Blake joined Premier, let me just give you listeners a little background. He quickly and lovingly earned the title of our walking encyclopedia. For those that you don't, you may not have met him or you don't know him, he's truly brilliant. I'm fairly certain he remembers every word he has ever read and every disease process he has ever learned about. So I was super excited to have him on board because I was quite a bit older and maybe didn't remember a lot of those esoteric facts that Dr. Williams knows. But today he's going to enlighten us on the rashy, itchy, scratchy side of summer skin. Are you ready, Blake? I'm ready. You know, Missy, if you give me a chance to talk about skin, that's an itch I'm going to have to scratch here. So let's get going. I love it. So good. So good. So summer in Arkansas, it's hot. It's sweaty. Sometimes your skin really hates it. So Blake, what are a few of the most common summertime skin maladies that we see? You know, Missy, there's actually a lot of things that pop up, especially during summertime. And we've got a few things we're going to talk about today. Um, Really, the first one I want to talk about is actually folliculitis. And of course, you're very familiar with this. Uh, The interesting thing is I don't feel like this is a subject that gets a lot of coverage, uh, both in research or or even people just talking about it. But it's something we see all the time. That's Um, true. Folliculitis uh, usually presents as red bumps or, or pustules, and you can actually see them all over the body. So we see them commonly on the back. You can get them on the chest, uh, scalp, particularly in men, uh, but even on the buttocks, back of the thighs. And it's really interesting because there's, you know, when I approach it, I kind of break it down into several categories. Um, most common is bacterial. Uh, so that's what we see most often. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've also got pterosporum, uh, which you're very familiar with. And pterosporum is a, a, a fungus. It's also called malassezia. And it presents a little bit differently, but both of those are especially common in in summertime. Uh, The last one I kind of separate as a category. It's uh, pseudomonal folliculitis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that comes up in very special uh, situations. We call that hot tub folliculitis. And although it's a bacteria, it behaves a little bit different than the kind of conventional bacterial folliculitis. Blake, this one can be really impressive. One of my girlfriends called me in a panic. She was on a girl's trip. And the night before, they were having some wine and hanging out in the in the hot tub. And by the next afternoon, she was covered in very itchy, uh, inflammatory pustules all over her body and was sending me pictures of <laughs> all of her body, freaking out, going, what is this? Am I going to die? So it it is it can be very impressive and pop up really quickly. Yeah, and the good news is she's not going to die. So that was that's an <laughs> I, easy reassurance. I was able to she's tell not going to die. Um, what's nice about the pseudomonal folliculitis is you really get that classic story of I was in a hot tub. It usually sits on the areas that were directly exposed to the hot tub, so you see a nice kind of demarcation from where the water was. Um, obviously, folliculitis outside of the pseudomonal, that's the hot tub part. Um, Heat, sweating, friction, those are really the big drivers for that. Um, and it's certainly more common in summertime, so we obviously have more more of the heat and sweating. Correct. Um, can vary from being kind of painful to itchy. So obviously the pseudomonal one tends to be fairly itchy. But if you have some fairly prominent bacterial folliculitis in the back, it can certainly be uh, painful or sore. And a lot of times people have this and they don't even know that. So you'll see people working out at the gym. You look on their back and they've mm-hmm. got all those little pustules that look like acne. Um 
the good news is there's actually some things you can do uh, kind of on your own for this. Uh, what I usually will have people do to kind of start with is just use a, a benzoyl peroxide wash on the back. And that works pretty well for the bacterial folliculitis, but even for pterosporum, sometimes that seems to, yeah, to help. I agree. Um, obviously, if you're having trouble getting things cleared up with benzoyl peroxide um, wash, then that's something, a situation where you want to come in and uh, have a dermatologist take a look and, and see what's going on. Um, there's obviously a lot of treatments out there, but uh, unfortunately, no one ever actually... Uh, there's not a lot of great studies out there in terms of looking at what's the best treatment option, uh, but we can certainly uh, make it better. Yeah, a lot of times we'll open up one of those little pustules, do a little do a little culture, and see what exactly is growing there. And then sometimes we're we're able to get a little bit more specific than just hitting it with benzoyl peroxide. Actually, hit it with a very tailored antibiotic treatment that's going to work better and faster. And certainly for pterosporum, you know, if you're treating bacterial and you're not getting results, uh, that's kind of where thinking of a, a yeast folliculitis comes in. And I feel like I see that a little bit more in a younger population. I don't know if you feel that way, too. I agree. I agree. But it can be a little confusing and it can be very frustrating if you're trying to treat it alone. So if something like this is happening to you and not going away, come on in and we'll help you get to the bottom of it. Sure. So we got some other things uh, we're going to talk about. Obviously, one of the big ones uh, we see a lot in summertime is poison ivy. Um, interestingly, you know, it varies a lot in terms of severity. You've got people like myself, I'll get one or two little blisters and that's about it. And then you've got these folks that come in and they just look awful. Head to toe, face is swollen. It really is interesting how certain people are so super sensitive to it. Um, my My decorator and dear friend, and I'm not going to give her, her her name, but she uh, is very, very sensitive. I mean, she can literally walk by poison ivy and she will be breaking out. So it's it's really interesting to see how people really either react heavily or really don't react at all. Sure. There's a, a subset of people, it's actually pretty small, but maybe about 10% that are almost impossible to sensitize poison ivy. I'd love to be one of those people. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'm not, but uh, uh, I don't know how those people worked out. A lot of times I'll also see this transferred from pets, too. You know, someone lives out um, on a farm or they live out in the forest or dogs are out in and out the backyard. Um, that oil from the poison ivy can really get stuck in the fur, come in, cuddle up next to you. Next thing you know, you got poison ivy. Yeah, that's you know. pretty common. It's an interesting thing that you bring up, too, Blake. A lot of people will come in and they'll have it and then they'll call back the next day and they're like, so it's spreading. So explain to them that that's explain how that's not really spreading. So the, the interesting thing is that the uh, exposure is all very much there in the beginning. And actually, once you've taken a shower and kind of washed it off, you're not really spreading the oils at that point. So people think that it's contagious and that you touch one area of poison ivy, you're spreading to there. And that's not really what's happening. It depends kind of on the amount of exposure you get. Uh, so the concentration in the area of the body you're exposed to. So some thin areas of skin react very quickly. Eyelids, classically, uh, react very fast. Um, hands, you see it a lot, but the skin's fairly resistant, but they do tend to get a higher concentration. So a lot of times people are exposed from touching. Another classic one, um, you haven't washed your hands, start touching other areas of the body. You may not get a lot of oil, but a few days later, it starts to break out in those areas too. Yeah. So it's really based more on concentration with that one exposure. So that's kind of an interesting thing. All right. So what else do we want to chat about today? One thing I kind of brought up because it's uh, an interesting story is a polymorphous light eruption. 
And this is kind of a fun uh, summer one, although you can see it sometimes outside of summer. Um, and a lot of people don't realize what it is. Uh, but polymorphous light eruption, breakout in a rash, it's usually on the chest or arms. Uh, and it can look like a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I've seen it look like full blisters, a lot of times they're just small pink raised bumps. Uh, sometimes they're thicker plaques. Um, but the story here is this is the first time you go out and get your intense sun exposure. So it's really a change in UV exposure from not getting uh, much over the wintertime. You go out, get one big UV exposure, and then uh, it's almost an allergic type reaction to the change in UV exposure. Yeah, this actually happened this this summer, this spring break, with my daughter in the Bahamas. Um, and she came to me and she's like, Mom, what is going on? And it looks, I mean, it looks a lot like urticaria. So I'm like, okay, is she allergic to the sunscreen or is this polymorphous light eruption? So I looked at the sunscreen. She was only using physical blocking sunscreens. So it turned out that that's what she ended up having. Um, and she, it was not very much fun um, for a few days, but that calmed down with some steroid creams and some mm -hmm. antihistamines and she did fine. And we were just out in the backyard putting together some furniture the other day. And she's like, mom, is that thing going to happen to me again? <laughs> I'm like, baby, I don't think so. We've been through, you know, we've been through that first exposure. It's probably not going to happen again. Yeah, I can, I can certainly understand Sophie's, uh, issue there. I think I was probably about 12. We went to Florida, uh, for vacations pretty early in the summer. So obviously I hadn't had a lot of UV exposure at that point. Broke out in a rash all across my chest, miserable for a week. Of course, my parents didn't know what was going right. on. Um, um, they're not medically trained or anything, so they were just trying to get me some hydrocortisone to put on there, but turned the week into a pretty rough week, actually. And of course, looking back, I didn't know what was going on at the time, but um, once I got into dermatology residency, reading about PMLA, I was like, well, I certainly have polymorphous light eruption. Yep. And well, I think we've all diagnosed ourselves with multiple things going through medical school, right? That's, that's part of the fun of being in medical school. You hear those things, oh, I've got that, I've got that, I'm going to get that later on. For sure. Um, the interesting thing about polymorphous light eruptions, actually, I was looking, it's pretty common. It's maybe as much as 10% of the population. Uh, that's significant. And so it's, it's actually pretty common, but probably under-recognized. Gotcha. All right. What else do we think we want to chat about? Maybe a little... Uh... Little foot fungus. I love talking about foot fungus. It's a popular, <laughs> popular topic. Um, so, obviously, uh, uh, fungus, kind of exposure mediated, but uh, similar to uh, folliculitis, um, where you've got bacteria and fungus. Fungus and foot fungus, it likes warm, moist conditions. So, a lot of the things we're talking about here summer are based on those warm, moist conditions. Um, so foot fungus can present in a bunch of different ways. So a lot of people classically think of in between the toes, they kind of have a burning, itching sensation. Um, but it doesn't always look like that. You can actually get little blisters or pustules on the inside of the foot. And then you've got that moccasin type where you just have scaling all across the bottom of the uh, foot. Um, obviously, when you're out, if your foot gets wet or damp, particularly as we're outside, it's hot, uh, socks get a little sweaty, uh, foot stays damp all day. That just provides a good environment for it to uh, pick up and take off from. A little Petri dish for the fungus. Um, so obviously the itching can kind of clue you into what's going on there. Uh, the good thing is that as long as it's limited to the foot and doesn't involve the toenails, uh, we've got some uh, options over the counter that you can pick up that, that are effective. Uh, at least uh, statistically, the, the topical lamicil is probably the best uh, over the counter in terms of foot fungus. Uh, so that's probably where I would start on that. 
So after using that for a couple of weeks, like using it for at least a week longer than, you know, when the symptoms kind of subside, usually is what I'm telling people. Is that about what you're telling people? So I usually tell people to, yeah, to go for at least a week or two after the symptoms subside. Um, obviously, if you got nail fungus, that's a little different issue because it, it provides a portal to entry and the topicals really just don't don't work well for that. Right. Um, obviously, you can spread fungus from other areas too. So a lot of times we'll see uh, men, you'll start to get jock itch and a lot of times it's spread from foot fungus. Um, so you got to be kind of careful about spreading around too and uh, obviously, the warmth and moisture comes into play in summertime with that as well. All right. Sounds perfect. So now that we've talked about a few of these things, let's talk about um, an at-home kind of, you know, what does our medicine kit need to look like? What What are a few things that every person should have at home just to combat some of these things? So obviously, the, the big one for me is uh, we ought to be starting off summer with our uh, sunscreen. Of course, I'm like you. I like the physical sunscreens, the zinc or titanium dioxide. So we've obviously got tons of that in the house. Uh, I got to tell you a little proud parent moment here. So <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, I've got three kids. One's a nine-year-old, so uh, he's responsible for putting on his own sunscreen. We're usually getting the, the girls that are younger ready. Um, so we tell him to go get his sunscreen on, and I'm getting the girls ready walk out and there are all these beautiful white zinc oxide footprints all along our floor. Oh my gosh, I love it. It even puts it on the bottom of the his The man feet. had to sunscreen the bottom of his feet. Um, so, proud, so proud. Proud parent moment, you know, he's taking it seriously. Now I'll tell you that zinc oxide on, on floors uh, <laughs> takes a little bit of work to get out. Um, oh, I'm so proud though. That's but you're so, so proud. good. So obviously, so good, Blaine. Uh, I like to start there. Um, other things, you want to have some hydrocortisone uh, cortisone cream. Um, you certainly can use it for bug bites or poison ivy. A lot of times you're going to need something uh, potentially stronger, but it's a good place to start. Um, aloe vera works nicely for sunburns. Obviously, we want to try and prevent those before they mm-hmm. uh, start. Um, and you can get uh, over-the-counter topical lidocaine uh, anesthetics and things like solar cane spray that are kind of nice to have. Again, would prefer to avoid that in the first place, but if, if you're there, uh, that's something that will at least give you some symptomatic yeah. relief. Sunburns are miserable. You want to avoid them. And they also increase your risk of skin cancer, so you have to really try to avoid all that sun damage if you can. So, Doc, when should our listeners seek the advice of a dermatologist with any of these conditions that we've talked about? So obviously with some of these conditions, like we talked about, there's a few over-the-counter things you can try. But if you've been doing that for, you know, a week, a couple weeks, it's not getting better. That's when it's time to come in and see a dermatologist. Um, Now, obviously, some of them like poison ivy, they can be very severe. That's something you want to come in pretty quickly after the exposure, especially if you know you're one of those people that's uh, very sensitive to it. Yeah, because you can really calm down the reaction if you treat it quickly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Williams and listeners. Thank you for joining. Remember when your skin can't stand the heat or itch anymore, we have seven board certified dermatologists, PAs and nurse practitioners to help your skin chill out this summer. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. On the next All Things Skin, Dr. Williams will be back again, and we'll get personal on one of the most under-discussed topics in the male world, aging. We'll see you soon.